Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Alexis Bolin with ERA Legacy Realty in Pensacola, Florida. Last year, she closed 125 transactions with a total sales volume of $30 million. Her average sales price was $240,000, of which 30% were buyers and 70% were sellers. She operates a team with four members, one buyer agent, one administrative assistant, one office manager, and one team leader. Alexis Bolin is the team leader of the Bolin Group. She's been an agent for 35 years. Alexis sold 165 homes in her best year and sold over 5,100 homes in her career. In this call, Alexis talks about lessons learned by being a waitress for 18 years before real estate, knocking on 50 doors a day to get started, selling 100 homes per year way back in 1987, her leapfrog approach to geographic farming, running a small team and maximizing profit, generating 70% of her business from past clients and sphere of influence, scripts for following up with your past clients, her recipe business card, Christmas smelling and pie giveaway party, her local access TV show, Let's Talk Real Estate, that she's hosted since 1987 why she's called the queen of objection handling, role-playing common objections such as, will you lower your commission? I want an experienced agent to list my house. I only want to buy directly from the listing agent. I need to think about it. Plus, team dynamics, profits, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Alexis. Hey, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Alexis, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Oh, my. You want to be bored to tears. Mike, I was actually a waitress. Uh, I was a single mom for years, but I started waiting tables when I was 16. I was not a mom then. I just want to make that clear. But uh, I started waiting tables when I was 16, and I worked for the Army Officers Club System and Non-Commissioned Officers Club System at Fort Gordon, Georgia, with my last duty station in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, which was near my home, is where I started when I was 16. Eventually married, had a couple of kids, got divorced, everybody's been there, and found myself a single mom and worked three waitress jobs to take care of us. So I've done most everything in the food industry, uh, you know, from being a short order cook to a car hop to work in a real fancy restaurant on the Jersey Shore, fancy country club a really nice restaurant that was frequented by, uh, shall I say, the Italian mafia, and uh, 
worked as a cocktail waitress, uh, done most everything until I uh, remarried for a short period of time, moved to Pensacola and made the decision off the top of my head to go into real estate in 1978. So that's kind of it and what I did before real estate. I have uh, two children by birth, a son and a daughter, and I have a niece that I raised since she was eight, so she's like my third child. And um, two grandchildren, one twelve and one twenty-seven. So wonderful hubby, and life couldn't be better. Do you recall why you switched from being a, a waitress to getting into real estate? I was afraid you were going to ask me that, and the answer, really and truly, Mike, is I don't know. I actually applied for a waitress job at the officers' club at NAS Mainside. So I went out there because I wanted a job really as a food and beverage manager, which is what I had been at Fort Gordon, Georgia. And the gentleman in charge of the club didn't have a supervisor position open, but he told me he would give me a waitress job until he had a supervisor position open, and I decided I didn't want to do that. So I told him that I didn't want to do that, and he asked me what I was going to do then, and he said, are you going to go downtown and wait tables? And I said, yeah, I probably could do that, but nah, I think I'll sell real estate. And that's what happened. And he explained, this was 78, he explained how tough real estate was at the time and that we we're here at a basically military town with NAS Pensacola, the home of the Blue Angels, and that the guys' wives get licenses when they're here on active duty. And if that doesn't happen, they retire here and they get a license. And my ex-husband was retired Army, and I didn't even have a Navy ID card at the time. I had Army. So I had everything against me, he told me, and I said, that's fine. Just, you know, keep my file, Mr. Green, because, you know, a good way is hard to come by, and if I don't make it in real estate, I'll be back, and that was it. When you went into real estate, did you have a fast start or a slow start? Well, I had what a lot of people consider a fast start since I was a new agent, you know, I wasn't sure what a fast or slow start was, <laughs> but, but uh you know, it didn't take me any time at all, and, you know, I was doing more sales in the office that I was in than anybody. So I guess I got off to a fast start, but, but I got out and worked. I knocked on 50 doors a day. When you did the door knocking 50 doors a day, do you recall, were you just going generically through neighborhoods, or were you going around a, a listing that you had? Were you knocking on for sell by owner expired? What were you doing? Well, remember, I didn't have any listings. So I was knocking on doors in neighborhoods with my spiel, which was, do you know of anybody who wants to buy or sell a house now or in the near future? And so I went knocking on doors, and people would tell me if they could think of somebody, and people were nice. They tried to help me. And you know, I did this a month until I got around two whole neighborhoods, and then I decided, well, I can't go back next month and give them a business card. So... I started doing recipe cards, believe it or not, and because I had worked at the officers' club and all, I had a lot of wonderful recipes, so I made them up on three-by-five cards, and each month I'd go around and talk to people and pass out my recipe cards and ask who they knew that were thinking of buying or selling. My best door-knocking days was in the light rain. We'd be in the office. It would start to rain. I'd, if I didn't have appointments, I'd grab my umbrella, and out the door I went. Why? Because... First of all, they'll let you in the house. It's raining. Then they feel sorry for you because you're out in the rain. And then they thought, well, this is really good. This gal is hustling. She's out in the rain looking for business. And they would find me some business. 
Let's fast forward a little bit. How long have you been in the business so far? Well, it's been about 35 years now. How many homes did you sell last year? hundred and a quarter. Do you remember the sales volume? Somewhere around 30 or 32 million, somewhere like that. You know, I'm not a person that keeps up with the numbers, Mike. I'm good in math, so don't get me wrong. And I am getting older, so I know, you know, trying to keep things in your head's hard. But I don't keep up with that. The office does. And, you know, at the end of the year, the beginning of the next year, they'll let me know what I did. I'm more interested in, in the people. I'm a people person. So I'm more interested in, in helping the people. And when I help the people, it all comes together, and it has every year. Can you tell us how many homes you sold in your best year? About 165, and I don't want to ever do that again. I had one assistant, myself and my husband, and talk about no life. I don't know how I did it. I mean, I really don't. That was back in 92 or something, 94. Like, they killed me. And I thought, no way, I'm not doing this anymore. So I didn't. I cut back. When you cut back, did you, did you just reduce the volume that you were doing? Did you bring in more people to help? How did you resolve that problem of being overloaded? Well, I got even more selective than I had been before. And then my daughter came on board to help out. So that took some of the slack there. But I just decided that I wasn't going to get out there and beat the bushes as bad as I had in the past because that, that kind of taught me that there's more to life than how many units you do or how much dollar volume you do. You have to have time for you. And so I cut back. And yet you've had a, a pretty storied career. Uh, how many homes have you sold in your, your career now? Probably over 5,100 or so. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Where is Pensacola, Florida? Well, believe it or not, we are in the northwest part of Florida. Florida has a panhandle, and we're the most westerly city in the state of Florida. And some interesting things about Pensacola is that we're on the central time zone. The rest of Florida is on eastern. The other thing is we're an hour from Mobile, Alabama. I'm only five hours from Atlanta but I'm seven-hour drive to Disney World. I can be in New Orleans in three hours, but I can't get to Jacksonville, Florida in three. It takes six. Also, Pensacola is the oldest settlement in the nation. We're taught in school that St. Augustine is, but after moving here, I learned that St. Augustine is the oldest continuous settlement, and Pensacola is America's first settlement. And what happened was the settlers came from Spain and settled into Pensacola. They were here for, I guess, about a year when one of our wonderful hurricanes came along, wiped out two of their ships. Then the folks hopped on the remaining ship, went back to Spain to resupply. And in the meantime, a group of Spanish landed in St. Augustine and stayed. And that's the long and the short of the Pensacola story. I'm sure you use that for people that are relocating there. Absolutely. I love to, and I did that yesterday. Uh, we've looked at homes, and on the way back to the office, I swung through the historic district and kind of gave them the high and low of the historic district of town. 
and a little bit about the history here because there's tons of history here in Pensacola. Well, you know, Jackson signed a treaty with the Indians here. I mean, all kinds of things. Geronimo was held at Fort Pickens out on Pensacola Beach. And out on our naval air station, we've got one of the oldest forts in the nation. We've got one of the oldest churches standing on its original location, uh, one of the oldest churches in Florida standing on its original location here in our historical or hysterical district, I call it because they're hysterical about keeping it up. <laughs> but there's a lot of history here in Pensacola. And then in addition to that, this is the home of the Navy's Blue Angels. So we train the Navy pilots here. And then we have a wonderful Naval Air Museum, which I believe, and the people here believe, is much better than the Smithsonian in Washington. So there's a lot of nice things here. One of our former mayors, who's now deceased, Mr. Vince Lidge, used to say, Pensacola where thousands live like millions wish they could. We have beautiful, pristine beaches. You can walk out into the water. It's kind of an aquamarine color, and you, you can be in water up to your shoulders and look down and see your feet because our sand is made of quartz, unlike where I grew up in Jersey. You know, it's kind of rocky out there and dark and murky. The water here is not. It's beautiful. Do you know what the population is there in Pensacola? I'd have to guess and say the city's probably 50,000. And then we, we have a huge geographic area. Uh, Escambia County is one of the larger counties in the state of Florida in land size. And then we are adjoined by Santa Rosa County. So we actually work two counties. So maybe 250,000 in the metropolitan area. Describe your current real estate market. Well, Pensacola, our prices are low compared to the rest of the nation. So the average price in the multiple listing hovers around 150000 And days on the market have dropped considerably, and we're probably somewhere between 80 and 90 days average in MLS right now. We're not in a seller's market yet. We have more of a balanced market, I will say, because we're still experiencing a few short sales and foreclosures. That's never been the majority of our sales, like South Florida, some areas where like 70, 80% of the sales were distressed properties. We were maybe 20 to 25 at the height of the distressed property stuff. We're more of a, a balanced market, but still in all, if the house comes on the market looking good and priced right, it's gone. And we're getting multiple offers. But we suffer like everybody else does with sellers who can remember back in 05 what the prices were. And they think that's today's price. So we still have some of them out there. Have your prices come back up to the pre-recession period? No, no. And, and I personally don't think they're going to, neither does the chief economist in our area. Our prices took a jump, Mike, in '04 after we suffered with a hurricane named Ivan, September 15th or 16th of '04. We weren't jumping up like the rest of the nation because Pensacola had always been kind of stable like a normal heartbeat. But then when that hurricane came along, we had about 50,000 homes that were either damaged so that you couldn't live in them or they were completely wiped out. So all of a sudden, we went to zero inventory and people had to have places to live and our prices went through the ceiling. And so we have not recovered price-wise from that, nor do I think we will. We've always been very steady here and never big peaks and valleys in our marketplace like, say, California and other areas. 
So we're, we're on the rise very slowly and steady in this area. You mentioned that the average price in the area is around 150, yet your average price is around 240. So what attributes to the difference? Have you intentionally moved yourself into a higher price range? How, how did that happen? Yes, I did that years ago, Mike. I found myself, the first time that I closed 100 units was in 1987, and the total dollar volume was five, a little over $5 million. And I thought, what am I, nuts? I need to start working a little higher price range here. So I moved myself into farming some higher priced neighborhoods. And with my marketing, my advertising, local advertising and all, I was able to transform myself into the higher price range. Now, we have much higher priced houses here, and I do sell some of those, but I don't try to stick in that very upper end range because when things are tough, that upper end range is not selling, and the bottom is not selling. So I want to stay in the middle or above, just above the middle to keep my business going because we all remember times when we couldn't give away the million-dollar house, and so... It's all nice to have a listing at that price, but I'd much rather have three $300,000 houses because I know they'll move faster and there's more people to buy them than there is to buy the upper end. That's just the way I think. Do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? Not really. Not if you're talking about, for example, oh, I sell condos or I sell historic houses. No. I do not. It's not necessary in our marketplace to do that. We do have some people who put themselves in a niche market, like I'm the condo specialist, and when the hurricane came along in 04, there was no business, period, because there weren't any. So what I learned waiting tables was to always keep myself in a position to have a job. So I kept a steady job working on the base, and then... I went out and I found myself like a cocktail waitress job where I could make more money, but I kept my steady job. So I learned that waiting tables and I've applied it to real estate. I want to stay in what I call the meat and potatoes of my market. And yes, I do high end. And yes, last year I closed on a house for 30 some thousand for an elderly lady. And the realtors were calling saying, I don't believe you have a listing in this price range. So, you know, that's my charity case. I would have done that for her for absolutely free. By the time the check came, it really was, I was in the hole on that one. But to answer your question, no, I have not done that. I just have chosen not to do that. How do you generate your leads in business? What are the top three ways that you do that? Well, of course, in the beginning, I was out door knocking. And I don't have to do that today, although it would be really fun, I think, to be able to have the time to go do it because I'd really enjoy that. I'd get out there and I'd have fun knocking on doors because I did it before and enjoyed that. And I know people listening to this are going to say, this woman is whacked out. But again, as I said, I'm a people person, and so I enjoy being with the people. So my business is built around the people. I'm still in touch with people. I sold houses two thirty 30-some years ago. In fact, I was out with a buyer yesterday. It's been 28 years 
since I sold a house to the lady who referred her. And yet we stay in touch. Like I say, I'm more of a people business. So my business is built from the ground up based on people and giving good service to people and word of mouth referrals that come in from my past customers. And the other thing that I find that brings me an awful lot of business is my community involvement. Now, I don't get involved in anything in the community to do business because I don't believe in that. But I get involved in what I'm passionate about. And because I'm passionate about it and because I'm not there to do business and and they're well aware that I'm not, I end up with business. It's just amazing. Uh, My husband and I both are in Rotary. He belongs to one club now and I belong to another. We used to belong to the same club. And we believe in Rotary International and what Rotary does locally and internationally. And so we're involved in that. I'm on the board of our community maritime park association here where we've developed a piece of waterfront property that belongs to the city. In fact, we have a ball field, a baseball field on the water here in Pensacola. Come down and and take a look at our baseball team, the Blue Wahoos. I'm involved in on the board of directors for the Escambia County Early Learning Coalition, appointed by the governor. And that's the group that oversees the preschool learning. So your daycare centers and your, your folks that run any of the education for the children before they start school. And in addition to that, I'm on the board of called Rebuild Northwest Florida. After our hurricane, it became evident that there were a lot of folks around who couldn't afford to reinforce their homes to protect themselves more against wind and hurricanes. So this group was started to do what they call hardened homes, which to add hurricane clips and storm shutters and uh, seal the roof seams down tighter with something like liquid nails and so forth and the fascias and the soffits. And so... I'm working with that group. Now, we're not like Habitat. We're not out hammering and nailing because there's contractors that do that. But we have now managed to get some government grants to help people. So we do that. And lastly, I'm in a group of ladies called Impact 100, which started out to be 100 ladies each giving $1,000. And we would give a grant of $100,000 to one of our local nonprofits. And that group started in 04. And I'm proud to say today we have 853 ladies. And so this year our Impact 100 group is going to give eight grants of over $100,000. And since we started, we have put somewhere between 5 and $6 million back into our local community in the form of grants to do things in the community, like we bought a blood mobile one year. We gave money to replace all the worn-out band instruments in the middle schools in both counties, things like that. And then the other thing is I'm, I'm constantly prospecting my clients. The ones that have email, we email them. The ones that don't, we mail them. And then I call them. So in between appointments, if I'm driving and I'm going on a listing appointment, I've got a list of names that I'm going to call. And I'm going to make one or two telephone calls at least in between those appointments to just call people and say, hey, just thinking about you. And you'd be amazed at how much you can get done if you use that drive time in the car versus listening to the radio. Let's get into your past client sphere of influence 
how you're making that work. First, let's talk about the database itself. How many people are in your past client sphere of influence database? There's a couple of thousand in there. Some of them are not local, and so they only hear from me once a year. But I've got probably twelve to 1,500 that are local, and they hear from me more often. But once a year, I do my Christmas mailing. And so in my Christmas mailing, I do something that absolutely touches all my customers. And I quit doing client parties and things because I used to do that. And I thought, all the money I'm spending on that, why don't I donate it to a nonprofit in the area? So I've selected hospice, and we have a hospice house here where people can go. And when they stay there, there's room for their families to stay. It's like a little lodge. And so each year I make a donation to the Joyce Goldenberg Hospice House in honor of my family, my friends, and my clients. And rather than give them a client list like they'll mail a thank you, they're wasting my money on stamps and postage and man hours to do it. I just send a little postcard in my Christmas letter that tells people that I've done that. And more than anything I've ever done, Mike, that touches people. They're they're overwhelmed and yet they know I do it every year, but a lot of my customers will then go ahead and make a donation themselves to hospice because of it. And then for the people who are local, and I started this 25 years ago, and there's a lot of top agents who are now doing this, and that is during the Christmas holidays, I give them a pie. And this pie thing has turned out to be a nightmare. I can't get rid of it. And I don't mean that to be ugly. <laughs> it's just when I tell people I'm not doing pies this year, they, their face just, oh my goodness, it's like, it's like a frowny face comes over. But in that mailing, there's a coupon for them to come and get a pie. And years ago, I used to have them just go to one of the local bakeries. And they could go, you know, the two weeks before Christmas and they'd pick up any kind of pie they want and the bakery would send me the bill. And then my staff said, hey, you know what? We don't really get to see the people, so why don't we just shut the office down one afternoon and we'll have some refreshments and we'll just have everybody come to the office and get their pies. So we've been doing that. And quite frankly, the customers love it. So we have goodies and refreshments and all, and they'll call up and they'll order their pie. We'll pick up the pies and have them here at the office. Everybody comes. And it's a chance to see the people, talk to them, chat with them. They'll bring the kids, the grandkids, whatever. And we get to reconnect with everybody. So I do that every year. And that's really the one thing everybody looks forward to. Because I can't get around to see everybody. How many people do you think pick up a pie each year? About 300 or so. So, I mean, it's pretty neat. Last year I had a whole back end of my Lincoln Navigator full of pies. And I just pulled up to the office to start unloading them into the office when one of our county commissioners, who's a customer of mine, pulls up. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I came early to get my pie because I'm not going to be able to come this afternoon. I have a meeting that's just come up that I have to be at. So he said, can I get my pie early? And I said, not till you help unload these 300 and some pies out of my truck. He goes, Okay. So he helped bring in all the pies, and I told him, I said, let me get a picture of this, because this is the most work we've ever gotten out of a county commissioner that I know of. <laughs> so, 
So he gladly helped me unload and so forth. It's a lot of fun for me. It really is. I get to see the people, and they have fun. That's just been one of the big things. Now, I know a lot of other of the top agent friends of mine have picked up on the idea, and a lot of them do at Thanksgiving time, which is fine. There's nothing wrong in that. They do it at Thanksgiving time. And you'd just be amazed, Mike, at how a pie touches people. It's just crazy. I went to a closing last year. I sold a young couple a house. His parents had been customers of mine for ages, and I sold his sister a house. And anyway, at closing, they were engaged, not married yet. And so she said to me, oh, does this mean that we get to be on your pie list and come to the party this year? And I said, gee, Shannon, I don't think I'm going to do pies this year. Well, my goodness, the blood drained from her face. You should have seen her. (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, oh, no. But Eric's parents said we would get a pie. (laughs) (laughs) I said, tell me what they do with the pies. And so she says, well, Eric's sister comes and gets hers. And his mom comes and gets hers. They get different pies. Now we'll be able to get one. We'll have all of our pies for Christmas. We'll have three different pies. It's crazy. What day do you do it? Do you do it a couple days before Christmas, the week before? Do you have a certain day you like to do it on? Last year, we did it on December 21st or 2nd. I can't remember which day we did it on. And this year, we will probably look at doing it on the 20th because, you know, the 23rd, 24th, 25th are, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So we'll probably do it on Friday the 20th somewhere like that. And then we had so much food, my goodness, uh, and we had food left over. We took all the leftover food to the Ronald McDonald house, and they were happy to get it. How do you know how many pies to order? Well, we have them call and order two days before the party. We give them a cutoff date. So let's say the party's going to be on the 20th. The cutoff has to be the 18th so that I can order the pies. And so all they need is two days to have the pies ready for me. So we'll cut them off on the 17th or 18th, and we'll give them two weeks before that to order their pies. Sounds like you have multiple flavors, uh, multiple types of pies. Is that correct? How many do you pick? Well, they can have pumpkin, apple, or pecan. Now, we're in the South, so you know they get pecan. So those are all things that people have with Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner down here. Where are you getting these pies? Well, I was getting them. There's two local bakeries, small bakeries here, and I was getting them from them, but they, believe it or not, the bakeries told me that they are overloaded and they can't do it. So, actually, I have been using Sam's Club. So, I called them and I ordered the pies, and we just go pick them up, and we have fresh baked pies. They'll actually let you make an order that big? Yes, yes. They will. They're thrilled with the business. I'd heard from others that have been doing this. They couldn't order from Sam's Club or Costco, and they just have to go in and hope they had enough pies. But you're able to actually make an order, so that's good news. Yes, I I go in and talk to the people. And, And, you know, it's all about local, I guess, because I'm out and about a lot. And, uh... It's all about being local. And if they won't do it for me, which they they have, the gentleman who runs Walmart here is in my Rotary Club. So he'll he'll get them for me. You know, we we get it done. How much uh, each pie cost? You know, what's the cost of this event and getting those pies? Well, you're talking to a person who doesn't keep the money. 
but I think anywhere from six to seven dollars for the apple and the and the pumpkin, and about eight to nine for the pecan pie. When people come in, it sounds like you've created more than just a pickup. You you have actually a celebration. You have food and drink, and your staff is off, and everybody's mingling. Is that kind of the environment? That is correct, and we get pictures of everybody, and we email them all out, and post them. You know, it's a time to sit and chat with people, and or mingle and talk, and you know, we have things like depending on the weather. If it's cold here, we'll have hot apple cider and hot chocolate and coffee, and if it's not cold, then we'll have iced tea and coffee and some kind of punch for the kids and candy and cookies and cakes and just all kinds of finger food like that, sweet stuff. And you'd be surprised. They'll come and stay for a couple hours. What's your time frame? When does it start and when does it end? We usually start the pie pickup at 1.00. And we're supposed to be over about six, which gives people after work time to come. But we still have people who are kicking out the door at 7.30. <laughs> Last year, I finally said I had four couples there. I said, okay, you have a choice. You, you can stay. But we have to clean up. So who wants to help? And they all did. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> they all did. I said, my God, we've been on our feet now since about 11 o'clock. We've got to get cleaned up and get out of here. So they did. They they jumped in and helped us. Well, that sounds like that party creates a lot of goodwill. And I assume it's also creating a repeat and referral business. Are you able to attribute any business directly to the pie giveaway? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those people, those people have kept me in business through thick and through thin all of these years because that's my referral base. The other thing that I do with, with those pie coupons, I don't just go to my clients but to everybody we work with during the year, the termite people, the title companies, the lenders, anybody like that, the new people at the newspaper, anybody that I advertise with, the television station, everybody, the handyman, everybody is invited to come have a pie and everybody's invited to come have refreshments and so forth, whether it's the termite inspector or the septic tank guy or whoever, and city officials and people that I meet up with, anybody that's on the boards of directors with me, I send it all. And I also, we only have 10 neighbors on our little cul-de-sac. I also send one to all my neighbors. And believe it or not, they come. It works out great. The, the people that, that are behind the scenes that help you day in and day out, they're just thrilled because nobody thinks about them. They really don't. They don't take that extra time to say thank you. And so that's just a little something that I can do at the end of the year to say we appreciate you. And that's just really, it's more of an appreciation event than anything at all. And while it costs some money for the pies, it's still the best thing that I do to stay in touch with those customers. The other thing that I do is something that most people need to be doing, and that is the thank you notes. I'm constantly writing thank you notes. So if somebody does something to help me, I fire off a thank you note. And in today's world, people think sending an email to thank you is good enough. But see, I don't. To sit down, take pen in hand, and actually write a note, to me, is more important. 
So I also do that. In fact, my daughter went to the doctor this morning, and a couple of days ago, I not only sent a thank you note, but I had some flowers delivered to the doctor's office. They're not even the doctor that treated my husband for the cancer surgery he had on his arm last week, but he's a doctor customer who made a phone call for me and got an appointment in with the surgeon that that our own family doctor couldn't do, but it was his office manager who handled it. So I sent flowers and a handwritten thank you note to Barbara, and she just thinks we can park the Red Sea. And that's the best investment you can make in your business. Uh, the gals at, uh, at the dry cleaners, for example, I go in Thanksgiving and I may take them a pie. Or I'll go in on Valentine's Day and I'll take candy. Or I'll go in and deliver a big box of big tin of cookies or something. And believe you me, my dry cleaning gets taken care of. And I didn't do it for that reason. Just that they have a thankless job. And all they do is people chew them out when things aren't right. That's a big side benefit. You mentioned in your pie giveaway, you're inviting all your vendors. I'm sure you did it simply to show the appreciation. But one of the the big side benefits is that when things get a little squirrely during the year, I'm sure that your name is going to move to the top of the heap and they're going to take care of you first. Oh, there's no question about that, Mike. The surveyor will be out there in the middle of a hurricane if I need him to do a survey and and the termite inspector and whatnot. I can make one phone call and call in a favor at any time. The one thing that I don't do that I know a lot of other agents have done over the years, in all my 35 years, I have never let anybody comp anything for me. No ads, no no nothing. Now, some people say that's crazy. There's a lot of money to be had by having the title company help pay for some advertising or, or you know, whatever, the lenders you use or whatever. I've just never done that. And again, I learned that from waiting tables. I always want to be my own person because if something's wrong and I have to kick them in the ankle, I don't feel beholden to them and they understand. All I want to do is dump a ton of business on those people. And then they treat my customers like royalty. They absolutely do. They can't say enough good about me. They reinforce the fact that they've made the best decision in the world to use me. They tell them I'm wonderful to work with. I don't take anything from them. All I do is give. And I I learned that many, many years ago. You see, if you pay it forward, it all comes back. So all I do is give. And it gets returned 10 times to what I give. I don't want to take anything from those people. They have to earn a living. So I don't want them to give me back anything. The only time, Mike, I ask them for anything is when it has to do with charity. So when my husband's Rotary Club has their golf tournament to raise money for their charity event, yes, Alexis gets on the phone and says, hello, title company. Y'all need to put a team in this golf tournament. It's for Michael's Rotary Club. Then they say, tell me where to sign up. And so that's all I ever do. Our Impact 100 Ladies Group, we were meeting our Arts and Culture Committee, and there was 35 of us on the committee, and this is totally nonprofit. We don't use any of the $1,000 that the ladies contribute towards anything. It all goes to a grant, and I found out that the chairman of the committee was buying lunch for the ladies. 
was bringing in sandwiches and things. And I thought, that's not right because we're all on the same field here. And then I thought, aha, I can get a sponsor for lunch. I called the lender and I called the title company for our next two meetings. They sponsored our lunch for those ladies of impact. So that's the only thing I would ever ask of any of these vendors. You mentioned that you're doing this Christmas melling, and the inside the melling was the card for the, the Christmas pie. What else is inside that Christmas melling? There is a Christmas letter. I don't do Christmas cards to my customers. I do a Christmas letter. And it's not about what I did all year because we get those. You know, you get them and I get them, and, and it's fun to get them from people we know, what the family did that year and so forth. But I don't do that. I do some sort of a Christmas a Christmas poem, a Christmas letter of some sort. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's more serious. But uh, that's in there, the little coupon that says I made a donation to hospice in, in your honor is in there, and the pie coupon is in there. Now, if you live out of town, you don't get the pie coupon because obviously you're not going to be here to get a pie. But if you're in town, you get the pie coupon, and that's what's in our letter. You mentioned quite a few of the people on your list are out of town. Is that because it's a military town? There's a lot of folks coming in and out? We do have, you know, the military bases here, but my customers are not majority military. I'm still in touch with them, even though military has nothing to do with why they've moved. They've moved to take a job. They've moved to be near children. They've retired and decided to go to the mountains. And so people move for various and sundry reasons but I still keep in touch with them. I just closed on a lot yesterday. People were retired military. I sold their house eons ago, and they still owned a lot in Pensacola, and he called me to list the lot. And we just closed on that. And they've been gone 25 years. But you stayed in touch. Yes. Yes, we stay in touch. We absolutely do stay in touch. In fact, I just spoke to him this morning, and I said to him now, you know, you stay in touch with me now. Don't you be a stranger because, you know, I don't want to have to come up there and get you. <laughs> so, but they do. And, and it's because of them that I do the business I do. Tell us the other ways that you're staying in touch throughout the year. If I see something that's of interest to them, then like an article or something, I'll either email it to them or we'll cut it out and mail it to them. We try our best to call on birthdays and just say happy birthday, or if they're online, go on their Facebook and wish them a happy birthday on their Facebook page and anniversary and things like that. So, you know, I'm more of a of a hands-on than most people. I'll remind the new customers that they need to file their homestead exemption in between January 1st and February 28th, and anybody that closes during the year, whether they are my buyer or they're another agent's buyer, in January, the second week of January, we mail them a copy of the closing statement with a letter saying, you might need this for your income tax. So we begin the year by doing that. Throughout the year, we'll send a little note. But mainly, I'm picking up the phone and making phone calls. For example, if I know you work, Mike, and I've only got you know, five or ten minutes in between appointments, I'll pick up the phone and I'll call your house. And I'll leave a message and I'll say, hey, Mike, this is Alexis. Nothing important going on here in my life. I'm just thinking about you today. 
and I just wanted to touch base with you and just let you know I was thinking about you, and I sure hope everything's going okay with you and the kids and so forth. I bet they're growing up and, and getting big and tall and so forth, and again, not important that you call me back. I just want you to know I appreciate you, and I appreciate all the work that you do to help me stay in the real estate business. So you have a great day, and don't call me back. Bye. Guess how many people call back? I don't know. All of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I tell them, don't call me. (laughs) Right. But they do. Are you doing that on purpose, some kind of reverse psychology, or it just happens that way? I guess that's just me. I don't want them to have to take their time to call me because I all I wanted them to know was I was thinking about them. That's it. They don't have to call me back. Must have been so heartfelt that they wanted to call you back. Yes. Yes. In fact, most of the conversation goes, oh, my God, I cannot believe as busy as you are that you took time to call me. And that's how it goes. They're very respectful of my time. And, and that's really how it goes. Do you try to make a certain number of those calls per day? Are you making those simply on birthdays and anniversaries? Are you making them at random when you simply think of someone? How are you setting yourself a schedule to make sure that that's actually incorporated in as part of your business? Well, I keep a list of ones that I haven't talked to in a while and so forth. And then when I'm in between appointments or I have a few minutes, if I'm sitting in the doctor's office waiting, then... I'm making a phone call or two. I'm not just sitting there reading a magazine or waiting or looking at my email. I'm making a phone call or two. So I kind of keep a little list, just go into top producer and print out a list. And I keep a little list and I call and just leave my little voice message. And my older people just love it. Now, them I get on the phone because, you know, they don't work. So I get them on the phone. So if I know that they're going to be apt to hold me up because some of them will talk a long time, not that I don't want to talk to them, but I'm on my way to an appointment. So when I get there, I got to be where I'm supposed to be. I start out by saying, you know, Mike, this is Alexis. Just calling to check up on you. I'm on my cell phone and I'm on my way to an appointment. It's only got a couple of minutes. So I just want to see how you're doing. So then they know I have limited time. And they'll talk to me. And if I know I'm at where I need to be, I'll say, Mike, hey, I'm sorry. I'm where I need to be. Is it okay with you? I've got to go now because i got to talk to this couple and listen to the house with me. And they'll giggle and I'll say, you guys have a wonderful day. And that's it. I'm gone. So it's very easy. How many people are on this list that you're carrying around? Is it your entire database list or is just 10 names no, I'll, I'll print about 30 names and keep them with me until I get through that 30, and then I'll print about 30 more. So you're just kind of working your way through your database at 30 at a time. Mm-hmm. Are you mailing out anything else to your, your past client and sphere of influence other than the Christmas mailing at the end of the year? Are you sending something monthly, or what else is going out by mail? I was doing that monthly to the sphere of influence, and it just about killed me. Then we went to, we thought, okay, we can do this six times a year, and it still got to be too much. So I basically quit doing that, and I spend my energy on that Christmas mailing and my pie and calling in between and saying happy birthday and things of that nature. So then if I see something that I think is of interest particularly to them, then we'll send that out. 
I've always been back to the basics, Mike, when everybody got away from that and thought technology was going to set us free. We'd never have to talk to anybody again. We could just email them. I never did that. And you know the group of agents that I belong to, and they're all wonderful, top-producing agents. I'm just thrilled to be counted amongst them. But Alexis never got away from her basics. I never, ever turned over everything to email and stuff. And so... I still do my just soul cards. I still do stuff like that in in the neighborhoods where I sell. And then I I like to have fun with it. I have one card that shows a cartoon guy and he's stacking up boxes. And the card says, save your boxes. Your neighbors are moving. I just sold the home at 123 Elm Street. Instead of saying just sold. Because I want to be different. Now, every time I send that card to a different neighborhood, somebody calls and wants to know where I want the boxes. (laughs) (laughs) That means they're reading it. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yes, sir, they do. Yes, sir, they do. You know, I learned a long time ago, Mike, with marketing, you have to be first, you have to be unique, or don't do it. That's it, period. First, unique, or don't. And that's how I do all my stuff. If I'm going to take an ad in a newspaper and it's going to be a half-page ad, most people tend to want to do all the way across the paper a half-page. Not me. I want to run down the outside right side, right outside right side of the newspaper. And then I can actually take less space. It won't be a whole half-page. And it'll be less money, and yet I can dominate the page. So position is everything when you're marketing. And then being different when you're marketing. Don't be afraid to have fun. I mean, you need to poke fun at yourself. I always wanted to be, remember as a kid, we got those coloring books that had all kinds of activities in them, and one of the things in them is always a dot-to-dot, where you followed the dots. Yep. I always wanted to be a dot-to-dot. So I had the newspaper take a picture and create a dot-to-dot for me. And then I did an ad in the early days of the Internet when in 1992 or 3, I had an email address and all that and nobody else did, thanks to this top group I belong to. And so I did an ad which says, Alexis will connect all the dots and keep your transaction smooth or whatever it said. And that was a half page in the newspaper. I had more fun with that. I had an elderly lady call me and said, I drew you. I said, great, bring it to the office and I'll buy you lunch. Now, she wasn't (laughs) buying or selling or anything. (laughs) But that goodwill again, always putting that goodwill out there. Absolutely. So don't be afraid to have fun. Not long ago, I did an ad. I resurrected an old ad that uh, we all copied from Phyllis Laborski years ago, which was some old pictures of myself. And it said, more wrinkles in the face, less wrinkles in the sale. Which Alexis did you buy or sell with? And people called just howling. They just thought that was great. That, you know, you're willing to poke a little fun at yourself. Do you supplement what you're doing with the phone calls and the mailing, do you supplement that with the email? Do you have a, any kind of email campaign that goes out to the past clients as sphere of influence? No, I don't. I'll email them, but I don't have like an automatic campaign set up, Mike. 
um, I just at random will email them. Is there anything else that you think an agent should know about working their past clients and sphere of influence? I think the, the main thing is to be sincere and to really reach out and touch them. You know, all these things we send them through the mail and so forth is great, but they're not personal. And in today's world, I think it's more important than ever to add some personal touch to whatever you're doing. It's one thing to mail them something. It's another thing to pick up the phone and actually have a conversation with them. So I think if you can take from what the telephone companies had years ago, reach out and touch someone, that you really need to do that. It's the personal thing that they love more than anything you could do for them. It's like, as a parent, the best thing my kids can do for me is come home to see me. Don't send me anything. Yes, it's nice to get a card in the mail, but I'd much rather they showed up to spend a little time with me. And that's how I think we should be with our customers. We should be making friends, not customers and clients. We should be making friends. Just my personality. I know there's some deep personality out there that's going to say, oh, my gosh, throw up. So, you know, but I, I, have, I have a little bit of all those personalities, so a little different. Sorry about that. Alexis, did, did I hear that you're doing farming, some kind of geographic farming? You have certain neighborhoods that you work? Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, what kind of neighborhood are you working? Are you working multiple neighborhoods? Lay out your farm for us. Well, I work a couple of neighborhoods, and I learned this years ago, too, and that is I need to have kind of an entry-type level neighborhood, and then I need to move up. So it's kind of like playing leapfrog. Where are these people going to go in these $100,000 houses? Well, they're probably going to buy 150 to 200 and where are the $200,000 houses going to go? They're probably going to jump to four hundred. So if you're going to farm, it really pays to have these different neighborhoods that you can farm and do what I call leapfrog from one to the other. Because where are the people going to go if they're not leaving town and they're staying in town? Where are they moving to? So you want to be able to handle at least two, maybe three different neighborhoods that you work. And so, so that's really what we do. And, you know, we do that through our cards and so forth. And a lot of my customers are in those neighborhoods. So, you know, they're down here for the pies and so forth. And, of course, they're talking to the neighbors who aren't, saying, oh, I'm going to Lexus's office today. I'm getting a pie for Christmas. And they're like, really? Well, my agent didn't do that. Well, okay. So... I think to have neighborhoods that, that move up, here's the other thing. If you're just starting out doing this, you need to do some research, and you need to pick neighborhoods where things are moving. You don't want to be farming a 20-year-old neighborhood where everybody's sitting there and nobody's moved in the last 10 years. You want a neighborhood where they're going to be moving. And over time, it's become necessary for me to move some of my neighborhoods because that happened to where the turnover wasn't as great. And so that's what you've got to look at. Go on MLS and look at how many sales there were and look at the age of the neighborhood, price range neighborhood. And then I think, too, it should be a neighborhood that you're comfortable with working. If you don't think it's a good place to live, then you don't need to be there. 
So you need to be where you can champion those neighborhoods. You need to feel good about them. You need to be able to transfer that good feeling onto the purchasers so that they feel good about buying there or transfer that to the other agent so they can transfer that to their purchaser so they feel good about the neighborhood. It's not hard to do. You can still do recipes and things. You can go knock doors. You can still pass out notepads and things like that if you're just getting started. One of the things that I used to do that I don't do anymore that got a lot of goodwill was Yard of the Month. I made a sign and I made a deal with the Homeless Association that I would provide the sign and a prize for the Yard of the Month. Well, what's happened over the years is the Homeless Association has taken it over and they do it themselves now, which is fine. But if you're working in a neighborhood where they don't do that or even if they don't have a Homeless Association, you can still do that. Just get somebody, not you, to go by and pick a yard for you and congratulate them and give them a $25 gift certificate to the garden shop or something. And they'll think that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Go take some pictures with them, post it on your website, whatever you do. But that's what I would get back to doing if I had the time to do it. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealG TV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. You mentioned that in selecting your farm, you want to look at turnover rate. Is there a certain percentage turnover rate that you would look for? For me... I like to see that every couple of years, you know, at least 10 to 15% of that neighborhood is going to be turning over, not because it's a bad neighborhood, but simply because of the normal attrition of things. People, you know, make more money and they want a more expensive house. Bigger houses, you know, the kids have left, they're moving down. So if you have a neighborhood of 300 homes and there hasn't been 20 or 30 sales in the last couple of years, you don't need to be farming that neighborhood because you're just wasting your time. There's not enough business. How many neighborhoods are you currently farming and how big are they? Our subdivisions tend to be anywhere from about 150 to about 300 or so homes. And I think that's plenty large enough to try to farm. We do have a couple of very large ones here that are been put in in different units. Like one neighborhood's got 26 units to it and there's 900 houses. That's an awful lot for me to take on in one neighborhood. So I choose to farm some smaller neighborhoods. The best way to do it is look at some of your new subdivisions because your turnover is going to be there in the next couple of years. So look at some of your newer subdivisions and and nobody started farming those yet, most likely. And those are going to start turning because average is probably at the most three to five years. So if you've got a neighborhood that's three years old, things are going to start turning in that neighborhood. So I would look at that and not something that's been out there 30 years and there's very few sales. How are you staying in front of the people in your neighborhoods that you're farming? Well, again, most of those are customers of mine, so they're getting invited to the party. We are sending the recipe cards out. Again, anything that's funny, I'm sending out. And then the the just sold cards. And that's how I'm staying in front of them. I learned 
for me, the notepads and the things like that just didn't seem to work. The recipes still, even though you can go online and get them, do. However, when they're getting a recipe and you can go by and can say, this was my great aunt's pound cake, homemade recipe, it's fabulous. That's different because they can go online and get a pound cake recipe, but not a family hand-me-down recipe. So when I ran out of my recipes, I started doing what's cooking in other people's kitchens, and then I asked the ladies to give me their recipes, and then I would feature their recipe. The lady of the house, let's say her name was Donna, and she had a, a great recipe for cookies, and she gave me the cookie recipe, then I would do a card with that, and I would hand that out. And I would put her name on it and say, you know, Donna's favorite chocolate chip cookies, and pass that card out. That doesn't work for everybody. They've got to find out what works in their area. You know, we are in the deep south here. We talk slow, we drive slow, and things are are a whole lot different down here than it would be if you were in New York City or if you were in San Francisco or Miami. So you've got to look and see what works for your area. The problem I find, though, Mike, is most people aren't doing anything at all. And even if you got out and knocked on doors and did what I did when I first started, which is say, hey, who do you know that wants to buy or sell a house now or in the near future, they'd still be better off than doing nothing. How often are you sending out those recipe cards? Once a month. And those are very personal. You're not just buying those out of a catalog. You're, you're sending your recipes, your family's recipes, your friends' recipes, your past clients' recipes. So you're, you're actually having to go out and initiate that and, and research that. Dig up recipes. Digging up recipes. Yes. It's not hard, though. It's a, a very personal touch. Well, Southern ladies cook. You see? <laughs> Southern ladies cook. So it's not too hard. And, and they love to do that. I'll tell you another thing that happened to me, you know, holding open houses. And we don't do that here in our area to sell houses. I know my um, youngest child works for my dear friend Carol Greco up in the D.C. area up in Northern Virginia. And the first thing they do when they get a listing is they do an open house that very weekend. They get everything together, the flyers, everything, and then that Saturday or Sunday they have an open house. Well, we don't do that here. But we do have our builders' parade of homes here where the builders all pick a subdivision and they build homes, and we have a big parade of homes, and here it'll be multiple subdivisions all throughout two counties where different builders are building. So when I hold open house during parade week for the builders, every realtor out there is giving people a business card, and all they do is go to the next house and throw it in the trash can. So I don't do that. I started that many, many, many years ago too, is I pass out recipes. So my business card's on one side, the recipe's on the other side, and I hand them a recipe, and they don't throw it away. Even the guys don't throw it away. Typically, it's a Sunday, and you know the guy doesn't want to be there. He wants to be home watching TV, football, something. And so while the wife is poking through the house, usually the builders have them all set up like a model home, the husband is like slumped at the bar stool or sitting on the chair or something, bored to tears, and I'll go over and hand them a recipe and say, hey, this is really good. Does she cook? If she does, you might get her to cook this for you. And I'll get a giggle out of them 
course, the wife comes back and wants to know what I'm talking to her husband about. And then that's when I say I just gave him the best chicken casserole recipe or whatever it happens to be. And you might want to try it. So I have a conversation going that I wouldn't ordinarily have had because 90% of them are not there to buy a house. They're there to look. So I've done a lot of business from that because it's different. So I, I challenge the people who are going to listen to this to do something different. You can take something old and put a new twist on it. But whatever you do, do something different. Do something that, that's unique to you that the other agents in town aren't doing. So if you have to go hold an open house, maybe you'll pass out a newsletter or or whatever. Maybe you'll make cookies and pass out some samples with your recipe or whatever you're doing. But, but do something different and don't just be like everybody else. You've got to be first or unique. So you can take something somebody else has done and make it unique to you. When you send out the just sold cards, do you send them out to the entire neighborhood or just a certain number of houses around the home you just sold? No, I, I send them to the whole neighborhood. It's just so much easier than to have to pick and choose which street numbers I'm going to send it to. So we send it to the whole neighborhood. And the other thing is, I, I did this years ago. I went through the neighborhoods, we drove neighborhoods, and we wrote down every address in every neighborhood. Well, now you can go online to the property appraiser's office and get this stuff. But years ago, you couldn't. And I didn't want to have to keep up the names in those neighborhoods because they change. So I just send my stuff out to the homeowner without somebody's name on it. And it, it goes to the house. So that way I don't get somebody's name wrong. And they don't seem to care. Now, it's nicer if you go to the tax rolls and print the labels and do that, it's still not necessarily correct because our tax rolls are behind in corrections. So the Smiths may have moved three months ago and the tax rolls are not up to date and there's no forwarding on it. So it just goes in the trash. So this way it goes to whoever lives in the house, whether it's the tenant or the owner or whoever. Alexis, did I understand correctly that you have a TV show? I do. Come on down. I have a live call-in television show. It's called Let's Talk Real Estate with Alexis Bolin. It's on every fourth Tuesday at 8.30 in prime time. It's on a local cable station called Blab TV, B-L-A-B. My husband says they named the station for me. <laughs> anyway, I started this in, we can't remember if it was 87 or 88, but that's how long I've been doing this show in the same time slot. As you can see, I'm consistent. So we'll have a guest on, and so it might be the, one of the property appraisers. It could be a lender. It could be the termite people. It might be one of the county commissioners or the city folks down to talk about what's going on. During my show, I show pictures of some of my listings, and so it's a way to advertise my properties but it's also a way to get information out to the public. So we might be on there talking, for example, about property taxes and homestead tax exemption for Florida, and people can call in and ask their questions. And so we try to keep it timely to what's going on at the time, and interest rates start popping up a little bit, then I'll get a lender on, and we'll talk about 
the interest rates and why it's jumping up and where they think it's going to go and the different loan programs that are available out there. And so it's, um, it's been great. It's been great. I, I do business from it. It makes me unique again in that I'm the only agent here that does a live television show. So I have something to offer to the seller in the way of marketing that nobody else is doing. How long is the show itself? Is it a 30-minute, a one-hour? It's a 30-minute show. 30-minute show. Now, I have had some of my real estate buddies from all over the nation here to do the show with me. Since they just happened to be in town for some other reason and did the television show with me. And we were able to talk about what's going on in their area of the world and how it relates to real estate in general and how similar it is to Pensacola and how different it is from Pensacola and how they do business where they are. Just so my viewing audience can get an idea of it's different other places, but yet it's still the same in some things like price. By putting on that show, and you've done it for a long time now, that's created a little bit of celebrity status for you, as well as expert status. Uh, Have you found that to be true? Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, I have to tell you a story that happened a few years back. With the crazy hours I keep, you know, thank God Walmart's open all night or I wouldn't get a lot of things done. So it's Christmas season and I'm in Walmart. And I'm trying to buy a few items that I need, and it is literally 11 o'clock at night. So I come down one of the aisles, and all of a sudden, there is a lady at the other end of the aisle, and she hollers out, oh, my God, that's Alexis Bolin. Well, I just kind of froze, and then I wanted to melt like a popsicle. Before I knew it, there she was, standing next to me, threw her arms around me, gave me a great big hug. And now I'm saying to myself, holy crow, am I supposed to know this woman? Because she doesn't look familiar to me at all. Now, how many times have we been caught in that? And so I think, okay, I just have to admit I don't know her. And then if I'm wrong, I'll apologize if I'm supposed to know her. So I said to her, you'll have to forgive me in my old age. I don't recall having met you. And she said, oh, girl, you haven't met me. I watch your show all the time, and I just love it, and I just feel like I've known you forever. I said, okay. And so the next thing I know, she hollers at her girlfriend, come over here. You have to meet Alexis. Now, at this point, because there's a lot of shoppers in there because it's during Christmas, they're all now staring, like, what's going on over here? So here comes the girlfriend. She introduces the girlfriend. I get a hug from the girlfriend. Girlfriend goes, oh, man, I watched that show, too. I learned so much. So I'm, like, standing there mortified. (laughs) You know, I'm shocked. So I finally said to them, well, have you guys ever called in with a question? And they said, no. I said, well, I'm going to expect you to do that next time. They said, okay, we'll think of one. I said, all right. And when you do, remind me that I met you in Walmart at midnight. Sure, indeed, the next show she calls. This is the lady you met in Walmart at midnight. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, it happens. It's crazy, but it does. Do you get paid to be part of the show, or do you have to pay to be part of the show? Is there any compensation that goes back and forth? No. Remember me, I don't let anybody give me anything. No, I pay for the show. It's about $600, $650. 
for the half-hour show. I pay for the show. It's my show. I don't let, like, for example, any of the vendors I do business with would help comp that show, but I don't let them do that because I don't want to be beholden. But I give them an opportunity to come on and get exposure. And then sometimes I give my show to nonprofits that they have an event coming up and they need to advertise it. And then my show goes live on Tuesday nights from 8.30 to 9, and then it's recorded. And then during the month when they have empty slots, they'll play it back 15 times during the month. So the show may play on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock or Sunday night at midnight, but 15 more times it plays during the month. Wow, that's a big benefit. I didn't realize that. It is. The other big benefit is this. I find that a lot of the agents locally watch the show. And I'm glad because when we have experts on, they learn. And when they learn, it's better for all of us. But I can tell because if I show a house in the next day or two, I'll get a call from somebody that says, oh, you showed a house on TV the other night and my customer saw it and they, you know, I need to know what the address is and you know, we might want to go look at it and so forth. And I can tell by talking to them, they saw the show because they know a little bit too much about it and it wasn't their customer at all. But they wanted to know where it was because they thought of somebody they could show it to, which is fun. Because, see, my job is to market the house. And marketing to the other agents markets the house. Alexis, I've heard you referred to as the queen of objection handling. You seem to have a sixth sense there. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Do you have a, a technique that you use when you receive an objection? How do you deal with the objections? Well, fortunately for me, Mike, I don't have a technique. I don't have to memorize scripts and dialogues. That's just one of my fortes. There's other things that I have to work a lot harder at, and I recognize that. But scripts and dialogues can be learned because we learn things. We learn poems, and we learn, you know, if I ask you to cite the beginning of the Gettysburg Address, you could do that. Why? Because we had to learn that in school. So learning what to say in the form of scripts and dialogues is nothing more than like memorizing a poem. And then when you need it, you can pull it out. For me, that hasn't been necessary because maybe all those years of waiting tables, I'm like Flo in Mill's Diner. I just have an answer. And I don't know why I have an answer, but I have an answer. And I've never not had an answer. So I would say to people out there, if you find that difficult for you, you need to write down some dialogues, some scripts. You need to tape yourself saying them. You need to play them back until they're ingrained in your head so that the next time an objection comes up, then you've got the answer for it. It's going to roll right off your tongue. You don't even have to think about it. But with me, I don't have to think about it. I can just answer is that because you've been doing it so long? Did people stump you in the beginning, or, or do you just have a, a wit about you that even back in the beginning you were able to respond right away? I haven't been stumped ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's why my husband said Lab TV was made for me. I guess I process quickly is all I can say, Mike. And my mother said I was like that from the time I was little. So I don't know. I just know that I have an answer and I can process pretty quick. 
answer now. You know, don't ask me about Einstein's theory of relativity. I won't have any answer other than to tell you I'm not as smart as Einstein, so I don't know anything about it. But when it comes to real estate objections and things like that, I have no issues. I would have to think that part of your skill set in doing that is that you must listen well. You must be getting what they're asking you in order to respond at all. You have to know what the, the topic is. Do you use any kind of questioning techniques when you get the objection to try to isolate and identify it? Or is it just that you've listened so well off the bat that you usually get it? Typically, I get it. What I am able to do is to read between the lines because when someone throws an objection out there, there's something else going on. And the way to clear that out is usually I'm confused. Do you mind if I ask a question? So then I want to ask a question to further clarify what it is you said to me, Mike. And I'm going to keep asking questions. My grandmother was Jewish. She never answered a question with a statement. She always answered a question with a question. So maybe I learned from her. I don't know. But I know that you have to dig down deep sometimes to get at the root of what the issue really happens to be. I mean, if you throw something at me, I can show you. I just guess I can't explain it. Let's try a few. If you don't mind, let's, let's role play a couple of common objections and, and, uh, and just have a little fun with it. Let's say a buyer lead calls on a sign and you start to talk to them. You get a dialogue going and you ask if the buyer would like to see some more homes with you or see some homes with you. And the buyer's response is, I only want to work directly with the listing agent. Really? Why is that, Mike? Uh, I was told I could get a better deal if I go directly to the listing agent. Really? And what kind of better deal were you thinking? Um, well, I, I'm not sure. My, my uh, father-in-law told me that that's what I should do, and, and he's a pretty smart guy. Okay. So you're thinking the seller will take less money if you're working directly with the listing agent? Yeah, the way he explained it is then uh, they wouldn't have to pay an agent working with the buyer, and then that way I could get that money. Oh, really? Yeah, they could knock that off the price of the home. Would you be surprised, Mike, if I told you in all my 35 years in real estate, I've not really seen that happen? I I haven't done it myself, so uh, yeah, I'm just kind of following what somebody told me. I, I, I believe that that may be true. All right, do you mind if I ask a question? Because I'm really curious as to how... How people think like this. There must be a school that teaches this stuff, Mike, because I, I you know, have not really come across this. Um, if you were the seller, would it make a difference to you if the buyer was working with a different agent who represented them or if they were working with the agent who had the listing? If you were the seller. I was the seller. I'd probably just want an offer on my house. So it wouldn't matter to you? It probably wouldn't matter. Right. Would you as the seller maybe think that your agent is a good agent to deal with and it might be easier to deal with that same agent than it would be with a different agent? Yeah. And if you had two offers, would you be inclined to maybe work with the buyer who's working with the same agent as the listing agent because it might be easier for you? Yeah, I might do that then would you be willing to give up some more money for the buyer because of that? I don't know if I want to give up the money. 
Okay. Then would you as a seller ask me, after I've worked hard to find you a good buyer for the house, to get less money than the strange agent that you don't know who's working with the buyer? Uh, I can see how that'd be a, a difficult conversation. So you see where we're going? Yeah. Now, at no time did I really answer your question, did I? No. No, you just, you walked me through some steps, some logical steps. And you came to the conclusion that the seller's probably not going to do that, right? Yeah, that it was, it was not a benefit in the end. That is correct. If I had started an argument with you as a buyer, saying, look, it just doesn't work that way, you know, I have to get paid or whatever people say, then you alienate that buyer. Right. I noticed you use a technique. My, my father has a famous saying. He always says, play dumb, uh, ask dumb questions. And it sounded to me like that's what you were doing in the beginning. You said, really? It, you know, like, like it didn't make any sense and you were, you were probing. Yes, I'm blonde. <laughs> yes, I'm always, I'm always confused and I'm always asking questions. In order to help you better, I have to have answers. You're really digging and you're taking control of the conversation by asking those questions. Yes, absolutely. And you're causing the people to think rather than saying to the buyer who says, I only want to work with the listing agent because I can get a better deal. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, you're a nut, but you don't say that. What you want to do is ask enough questions that leads the buyer back or the person you're talking with, the seller, whomever, that leads them back to their own conclusion, which is the right conclusion, which is that's a wrong way to think. Years ago, I had a seller who said to me, would you take less for your commission? And I said, that's an interesting concept. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, I haven't really given that a lot of thought because not too many people ask me to do that. But now that you ask, would you do that? And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, if your boss came to you and wanted you to work for less but do the same amount of work or more than anybody else in the office, would you be inclined to do that? He thought for a minute and he goes, no. I said, okay. Is there anything else you want to ask me? So you got him to say no instead of you saying no. That's correct. Exactly right. Because he wasn't going to do it, so why should I? And that was the end of the conversation. My very first listing appointment, he said, you know, Alexis, we really like you. And we'll probably buy that house that you showed us from you. But now I'm concerned about listing my house. I really, really want a seasoned agent. And, you know, you were honest and upfront with us and you told us you were a new agent and you'd never sold a house before, never had a listing before, that we were your first customers. I said, yep, that's true. Everybody got to start somewhere. He said, yeah, but I don't know that I want to take a chance on somebody with no experience to list my house. I said, that's fair. Mind if I ask a question? He goes, no, go ahead. And I said... Okay, you told me that, you know, you work for the power company. He said, yes. How long have you been there? 25 years. You start new there? Mm-hmm. When you started new there, did you have any experience? He said, no. I said, but somebody took a chance on you, didn't they? 
Somebody felt they could trust you. Somebody felt you would do a good job. He said, that's right. I said, I'm only asking you to do the same for me that somebody else already did for you. And he listed the house with me. I didn't defend that I could do a better job because I had plenty of time. I didn't have any business or anything like I've heard other people do. All I did was take him back to that same position that he was in and ask him if he would trust me, like somebody took a chance on him. So you're connecting the other side to a personal experience that they've had where they might have been in a similar situation or might be put in a similar situation so that they can empathize with you. Yes, absolutely. You don't get anywhere but arguing. And I don't want to be on the defense. What I want is to have them understand that what I'm asking for is not abnormal. In fact, they perhaps have done that before. Or if they haven't done it, somebody they know has done it. But everybody can think back to their first job. We all remember it. How scary that job interview was. And so I think if you just take people to their own comfort zone, does that make sense? It does. Just take them to their own comfort zone. Let them come to their own conclusion. Let them come to that conclusion. But most people wouldn't even have thought to ask the man that question. They would have gone right into defending their position. And when you're trying to overcome an objection, you don't need to defend your position in that manner. You're creating a dialogue where you're trying to put both of you on the same side of the table instead of being opposing to one another. That is correct. It is my firm belief that everything should be a win-win. If it isn't a win-win, we don't need to do it because somebody's going to end up mad and ugly. We don't need to take advantage of people to sell real estate or buy or sell anything or do anything. We don't need to take advantage of anybody. A seller can get a fair price for their home. A buyer can pay a fair price for the home. If the buyer isn't willing to pay a fair price for the home, somebody will be. And they can move on to something else where they think they can steal something or beat up on somebody. They're just not our buyer. That's all. And I just believe that things need to be worked out so it's beneficial to all concerned. And there's ways to do it. There's give and take in every negotiation. But if somebody only wants to take, pretty soon the other person doesn't want to give. And then you end up at a stalemate. So overcoming objections isn't that hard. It's just a matter of asking enough questions to get through the thought process. Let's do a couple more examples to to try to drive that home. Let's go back to our our buyer scenario. Let's say that you've showed a buyer a bunch of homes. You finally find a home that looks like it's going to work. The buyers are are excited about it. It's obvious they like it. You ask them to make an offer and the buyer says, "Uh, I want to think about it. Well, you can go about that a couple of ways, Mike. So role play with me. So Mike, what do you need to think about? You know, my my mother-in-law always told me that I should think about things and and not make any rash decisions. So I'd like to think about this overnight. I know we're in a hot market, but I'd really like to think about it overnight. Well, that's probably pretty good advice from your mother-in-law. And you probably should go ahead and follow that. But if you choose to do that, I just want to leave you one thought. If you want to take time to think about it, 
In other words, what I call sleep on it. While you're sleeping on it, as long as you understand you may not be sleeping in it because you take too long for a decision, that is perfectly okay with me, Mike. Would that bother you? What do you mean I wouldn't be sleeping in it? I, I don't understand. Well, you mentioned it was a hot market, which means we're probably not the only buyers looking. So if while you're taking your time to think about it, and somebody else makes an offer and buys it, is that going to be okay with you? Uh, I could probably live with it, but I don't think my wife could. Okay. She really likes this house. So then could you cut down the amount of time you need to sleep on it? Uh, what do you have in mind? Well, I don't know. That's up to you. You know, see, my job is to help you. My job is to provide facts and data so you can make a decision. My job is to keep you from stepping on the alligator. Your job is to decide which house you want to buy and make the offer on it. So if while you're thinking about it, somebody else buys it, what you just said is your wife's going to be upset about it. So rather than thinking about it for a whole day or two days or three days, do you think maybe you and your wife could take an hour or two and discuss it and make a decision so that if this is what you want, we can move forward and get our offer in? Or do you really need the day or two or three to think about it and take a chance that it won't be there? Well, yeah, my, my real concern is I don't want to overpay for this house. Wow, you and every buyer I've ever worked with. There's a buyer school out there, I'm telling you. Absolutely, there's a buyer school. Nobody wants to overpay. Nobody wants to overpay. But you know what? Even at the height of the market, Mike, when people were bidding prices up so high that we were starry-eyed, we couldn't see that high, you know what happened? The appraiser came in and gave us a dose of reality. So even if you offer a price that may seem too high, the appraiser has to justify it. So you're not going to be able to pay too much because if you do, the appraiser sees the same, it's not going to appraise. So I'll tell you what let's do if it's okay with you. Let's go run the comps and let's see where this house fits in to what's been selling that have similar amenities in similar areas. And then we'll know what seems to be the market price for the house. Would that work for you? Yeah, that sounds fair. And then let's offer the seller a fair price. In fact, here's, here's my goal for you, Mike. When you pick the house you want to buy, we need to make that seller an offer that is so good, they're going to be scared to death not to sign it. Would that work for you? Uh, but now you're scaring me. So good, they, you mean like overpay? No, no. I mean, we look at the data. We determine what the market feels the price of the house should be, and we make a fair offer and a good offer. We find out what the seller's move-out date is, and let's see if we can give it to them. We find out what's important to the seller as far as what they have to have out of that house, and if we can give it to them, give it to them. Don't fight for the refrigerator when you've already got one, and that's important to the seller. But let's make it a fair price and make it a good offer so that the seller will sign it. 
And you'll help me research that to make sure I, I, I don't make a mistake. Absolutely. We'll pull the figures. We'll take a look at them. And by the way, when you said so we don't make a mistake, Mike, have you never made a mistake before? I've made plenty. And lived to tell it? I'm still here. Me too. So let me just tell you, we're going to do the best we can with what we have to work with. And so I don't think we're going to make a mistake. I think we're going to look at the data, analyze it properly, and we're going to make the right offer. That's what I think. Because I think we've already made mistakes before and we've learned from them, right? Oh, yeah. So I don't think we're going to do that. Well, let's move forward. Yeah. And, and again, what I want them to do is get comfortable with what they're doing. Did you feel comfortable? You made me feel comfortable. And I think one of the reasons is that you were honest about it, uh, you know, that sincerity. But the honesty, you didn't say, hey, this is going to be perfect and there's not going to be any mistakes made and everything's going to be great and you're going to get the best price ever. You said, look, you're going to do the best you can with a situation and that's honest. And, and I could feel that and it made me feel more comfortable. And that's really what, really what you want to do because we all make mistakes. We've all been there. And any person who can tell you they've never made one, you just need to cross the street and keep trucking, get away from them as quick as you can because it's not true. We all know it. So I think what, what works for me, Mike, and will work for anybody out there listening, is the trust and the honesty. See, it doesn't make any difference to me. I don't have to have a house. And I tell that to the buyers. I have one. My motto on my desk, the lender gave me years ago, because one of my favorite statements, if you like it, I love it. I don't have to have the sale. I don't have to have the listing. I told the seller not long ago when I was talking to him about price, and he thought that was not enough for his house. And I said, well... Here's the sales, pick three that you think that the appraiser can use to justify the price you're looking at, and I'll help you justify it. And he goes, well, how do I know you're just not trying to get me to price it low to get it sold real quick so you can get your commission and get going? And I said, well, you don't. But let me share this with you. I am drawing that great big Social Security check just like you are. And that allows me to be financially independent so I can afford to tell you the truth because I don't have to have the listing to pay my bills. That little check goes in the bank every month. And he just cracked up. <laughs> so I said, you know, I can afford to tell you the truth. Now, you may not like it, but it's and that's okay too. But I don't want to lie to you. Here it is. Here's what other buyers and sellers have been doing in the marketplace in similar type homes like yours. And these are the facts, and that's all I can share with you. If you want to list with another agent who promises you a higher price, good luck and God bless. That's certainly your prerogative. And I stood up. And his wife looked at him and said, oh, for God's sakes, shut up and do the paperwork with this lady. <laughs> <laughs> the voice of reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I wasn't trying to talk him into giving his house away. There's the numbers. Pick one. So I think, I think the honesty and, and the trust, I think before we help anybody do anything, we have to be able to trust them and they have to be able to trust us. 
And if the trust factor is not there, then it's going to be an issue. You're going to have a problem. So I'd, I'd rather pass somebody by and pick somebody that I trust. And that will trust me. Because if you and I were sitting across the table, Mike, I would have reached out and patted you on the hand. And when you started talking as the buyer about paying too much money, I would have patted you on the hand and said, Mike, do you trust me? And I would have waited for your answer. Because you see, Mike, if you trust me, we're going to pull the right information and you're going to make the right decision. And if you don't trust me, I can't help you. I'm not the right agent. And that's it. And it gets to be about that simple for me. Yeah, your your head is in the right place, your heart is in the right place, and then it just flows. I, I think that's fantastic. Thank you for walking us through that. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm, I'm definitely known as the queen of objections, for sure, because I, I will keep asking the questions until you've answered it yourself. That seems to be one of your keys, is get the other side to come to the conclusion that you're looking for, or come to their own conclusion, and hopefully it matches yours. Right. What I want them to do is come to a conclusion that works best for them. Even if they come to the conclusion they don't need to buy the house, or they come to the conclusion they don't need to sell their house, that's okay. But they've come to the best conclusion for themselves at the time. See, if I push something off on you as a buyer or seller, then it's always going to be my fault. I've done something wrong. But if it's your decision, you came to that conclusion, you buy into it, and it makes it okay. Make them own the decision. That's correct. That's exactly right. I don't know about you, but I have adult children who call for advice, and they really don't want the advice. (laughs) You know it, and I know it. What they want you to do is agree with what they've already decided. I'm the same way. When they call me about something, I say, well, I don't know anything about that. You know, did you think about this? Mm -hmm. Did you think about that? Yes. Well, what do you think about it? Well, they'll give me all the reasons. What are the reasons for going forward with it? Okay. What are all the reasons for not going forward with it? Okay. Seem like the reasons for going forward with it seem to outweigh the reasons for not going forward with it, right? Yes. So what do you think you ought to do? So I think we ought to move forward with it. I think you made a terrific decision. (laughs) reinforcement (laughs) correct exactly I mean that's all they want anyway so as long as I don't see anything really bad in their thinking then go for it and that's what you're doing with these buyers and sellers they're looking for reinforcement when you were playing the buyer not wanting to pay too much weren't you looking for that oh yeah And so if I lead you back to your own conclusion, you feel real good that what you're doing is what you're supposed to be doing. Alexis, tell me about your team. My husband, Michael, has a broker's license also, and he's been licensed. We've been married since 85. He's been licensed since 87. Michael's kind of our team manager, so to speak. Michael takes everything off of my back that... I don't need to do because I'm best when I'm with the people. Not only does he, thank God, pay the bills and so forth and keeps our little team running here, but he measures the houses, puts on the lock boxes, he takes all the pictures, 
and basically does all the running around and takes things off our back. My daughter, Lisa, has a real estate license, and she's worked with me for about 19 years. So Lisa's my buyer's assistant, and she also works as my listing coordinator. So jack of all trades in anything that has to do with real estate. Donna is our admin person. Donna's been with me 15 years, and Donna's not licensed, but she's terrific as an admin person. She's one of the best I've ever had. She's great with the people and keeps on top of things for me and lets me know if she even thinks there might be an issue. And she just stays on top of everything from contract to close. And that's it. That's our team. You have a tight team. You've, you've had nice production numbers. People out there are looking at your business model, and the question is going to pop up, are you profitable? Yes, we're profitable. <laughs> Remember me, I've got that check coming in every month from Social Security. No. <laughs> well, I found in years past, so many of my real estate friends went out and they hired all kinds of people. They had so many team members, you know, as many, some of them as many as 20, 25 people on their team. And yet when they looked at their bottom line, it wasn't as good as mine. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that model. All I'm simply saying is you have to do what works for you. And what works for me is to stay small. We don't have a ton of expenses. And so as long as we stay small and we work smart, we're fine and we're profitable. And so to me, real estate funds life. And we have fun with what we're doing. And yes, you know, we're like everybody else. We come in and find out, oh my God, we got termites or something that we have to deal with. But overall, we have fun with what we're doing. And yes, we're profitable. Otherwise, I would go volunteer at one of the charities. If I'm not going to make any money, I can stay busy doing that. So I think people need to look at what they're doing and how they can become more profitable. And I think they can become more profitable with a smaller team. Now, what that means is I have to work more. And I know some realtor friends out there who really don't want to do that. They have a a listing partner and they have a buyer partner and they've got several of them and this, that, and the other thing. And what they do is more kind of like the broker of our company does is, you know, she has all these people working under her, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with it. You have to choose the model that works for you. I'm a hands-on person. I want to be involved with my customers. I'm involved in every one of the transactions. So sometimes I go on a listing appointment and sellers say, well, I heard you do so much business that we probably won't get to talk to you. And I laugh and I say, oh, my God, where'd you hear that? I want to talk to that person because when they can help me figure out how to do that, you're never going to hear from me again. And they just laugh. I'm hands-on, and that's my choosing. We're at this to make a living, and we do. Now, do we sell what some of these other people do, you know, $80 million a year, $100 million a year? The answer is no because it's not possible in Pensacola but we do have a small profitable team. Alexis, what drives you? God, Mike, I don't know. I think, you know, if we could answer that question, you might be on to something to make a buck or two. 
I don't know. I guess what my grandmother, my mother instilled in me many years ago, and that was learn everything you can about what you do, give people a day and a half for it for a day's pay, and then they will let you do whatever you want to. And your goal in life should just be able to do whatever you want to do. And that's me. I don't ever do anything I don't want to do. I really don't. I I just, that's just not me. If when I was waiting tables, if I came in and there was a certain section I wanted to work, I'd go tell the boss, look, I want to work over in that left corner today. And if the boss said you can't, I would hand him the apron and say, you must be waiting on the people because they're calling my name down the street. And I would head for the door and I meant it. Consequently, he would let me work where I wanted to. I would just come in and whatever the gut feeling was that day, that's where I worked. There's no rhyme or reason for it. It's just how I felt. So I do 99 and 44% of what I do based on feel. Is that crazy? But I don't know what drives me, Mike. What drives me is to be able to do what I want to, I guess. Why have you been so successful? Can I say darned if I know? (laughs) <laughs> would, that, sure. would that ruin your whole tape? <laughs> I, I guess, and, and I've been asked that question before, and I've given the same answer, because during if I know, I can only speculate that if you are upfront and honest with the people, if you are trustworthy, if you are knowledgeable, and they know and feel that you always have their best interest at heart, that's what makes you successful, is that you care, that you truly care. It's more than a business. It's caring about these people. And I think that's what makes me successful. It's the people that make me successful. It's not me. I'm nothing without the people. And so the people make me successful. The people who are willing to take a chance on me day in and day out are the ones that make me successful. Not me. I think our problem tends to be, particularly in real estate, that sometimes our head gets so big we can't get in the doorway. And we begin to believe our own press releases. And it's the people that make you successful. The people make or break you. I'm thankful all the years I've been in real estate, I've never gotten any bad press. All those years I've been doing that call-in talk show, Nobody monitors those calls. If you call in, they're going to put you through. Nobody has ever said anything ugly or negative about me or to me. And so I think that's what makes you successful, at least for me, is your reputation. I work real hard to have a good reputation for doing what I say I'll do, even if I've got to stay up till midnight to get it done for you, and being honest with you, not lying about things. Even if it's bad news, I find a way to deliver it, but I deliver it. And I think that's that's all I can say about me. And I think that's what makes me successful is the people. Paying it forward, being willing to give them that day and a half's work for the day's pay. I took a waitress job years ago, Mike, and I really needed the job. The guy told me he wasn't hiring. And I said, okay, I'm out of here. I'm looking for a job. And he came after me, and he said, let's talk. And I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll work for you for a week. You don't have to pay me. Just let me keep my tip. 
And if you think I'll work out for your restaurant, then you hire me. On day two, he asked me when I wanted to work. And he didn't pay me for the week because I agreed I would work for a week for free. And he was going to pay me. And I told him, no, that wasn't our deal. So I think, you know, when people see that you're willing to get out there and to truly work, that's what's important. Alexis, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would simply say, to me, the most important thing that you can do for yourself is education and then apply what you've learned. When you stop learning, it should be when they're throwing the dirt on top. And what I find happens is agents get a license, they get a little business, they get somewhat successful, whatever that means to them, and then they don't learn anything else after that except take whatever continuing education that their state may require them to continue their license. And that's the extent of their learning. Get out of town. Go to your state conventions. Go to the National Association of Realtors conventions. Work on your certified residential specialist designation. Go get your GRI. Work on your ABR. Whatever's out there you need to do because everything you, you go to, you learn something. And if you go back and apply what you've learned, then that's going to help you to become more successful and it's going to keep you out of trouble. So as a new agent, I was like a sponge, and I guess I still am, Mike. I'm, I'm like a sponge. My grandmother said, never should you get so high that you forgot where you came from. So when we get the success bug and we think we're above learning something different and applying something different, it's when we start to spiral down, I think. So I think as a new agent, you need to learn. You need to learn from the people who are doing it right. Don't be afraid of the hard work. Don't get discouraged. If your heart is really in being successful in the real estate business, be willing to roll up your sleeves and do the things that other people won't do. And that's what makes you successful, being willing to do what others won't do, being there for your people. If realtors aren't available on Saturday and Sunday, you need to be the person who's available on Saturday and Sunday. If you look around you now, you find that a lot of dentists and doctors are providing weekend hours to get started because nobody else is doing it. Hair salons, nail salons, people that are open on Sunday afternoon. Why? Because they're hungry. They're looking for the business. And people who have to work six or seven days a week, they'll go do business with them because that's the only time they can do business. So... Learn everything you can about what you do. Apply what you learn. Don't just sit back and have a a smart bookshelf in your office. Learn and apply. And then help people. Help other people. Help other new agents. Help the people that, that come to you, your buyers and sellers. Be the person that they want to work with. The other thing I learned as as a young person from my mother and my grandmother, and that is if you have a choice between being liked or respected and you have to make that choice because it's nice to be both, choose respected. They don't necessarily have to like you, but by darn if they respect you, you're going to have business. And that has to do with the realtors that you work with in your community as well as the buyers and sellers. Work towards gaining respect, and then you'll be successful.
I'm going to leave you with this thought, Mike. You remember the famous Kennedy speech? Ask not what the country can do for you, but what you can do for the country. That's what we need to apply to our business. Don't look for what these people can do for you. Don't be adding up the commission before you show them the bathroom. Start thinking about what you can do for them to make a difference in their lives. You're not on the earth to mark time. You're on the earth to make a difference in somebody else's life. Because when it's all over with, that's all you've got. There is nothing else. Period. Well, Alexis, you've made a difference in over 5,100 families' lives. And all the agents listening to this call, you applied the lessons you learned waiting tables to selling houses and became a top agent. But you never forgot your roots and the principles that got you there. You care deeply about your clients and make them your friends. You showed it's easy to handle objections when you let them come to their own conclusion. You are a true professional. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who tests new ideas like a mad scientist and sold 268 homes last year. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.